This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to another episode of Basically. Today in studio, uh, I am remotely going to be speaking to someone who is going to share their personal story of a topic that we've been covering on the podcast for the last number of months, actually more than a year now. Um, Rosanna Davidson is going to be joining me uh, to talk about her fertility journey, her route to choosing surrogacy and then spontaneously becoming pregnant with her beautiful twins, Hugo and Oscar. Rosanna Davidson, thank you so much for joining me remotely during these crazy, crazy times. Hi, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to chat to you. Um, I feel like a bit of a stalker because I've been reading about you online for weeks um, and following your journey. (laughs) I certainly won't. I swear I (laughs) do. Um, and I'm really delighted to have you on. The listeners have been asking for you. We've been doing a sort of um, since kind of last year. People we we do on the show um episodes that are requested by the listeners and um, fertility started to come up in a big way mm. and we did um, podcasts on IVF and ICSI and sperm donation, egg donation um, and then mental health on the mental health aspect, perinatal mental health and coping with miscarriages and mm. it's all well and good to get sort of, you know, the expert opinion and it's useful information for people mm. because it can be so expensive to get that information if you want a consultation. Mm. But there is a sense that it's really cold and it's just sort of like, well, you just try again when the cycle fails. And yeah. so people were asking clinical approach. if we could get someone's lived experience and I mean, unfortunately, because I'm sure it's really, really difficult now, it has had a happy ending, but you have had an incredible journey with fertility. Do you want to like take us back to where it started or did you know that you were going to have fertility issues or not until you started trying? Well, how many hours do we have? Just go. It's quite a lengthy story, but I can make it as succinct as possible. I'm actually sitting, sitting here laughing because I'm sort of crouched in the corner of our bedroom looking out at the kids in the garden um, with we have a childminder today just so I can get a bit of work done and I'm here thinking I'm hiding from my kids so I can do this (laughs) you know we've we've sort of come full Full circle circle. where I was desperate for children and now I'm hiding from them (laughs) but um, that's you know that's the way sometimes well, to take you back to the beginning, um, I was born in, I'm really messing, um, to take you back to the beginning of our fertility journey, it was, well, back in 2014, we got married and I suppose we waited a year and a half or so to even think about a family. And at the time we were in our just early 30s and I, I sort of thought, what could possibly go wrong? We're young, we're fit and we're healthy. Um, miscarriage wasn't on my radar whatsoever. You know, the conversation even about fertility, pregnancy loss, even IVF, certainly surrogacy wasn't remotely on my radar. I didn't even know it was possible um, back. This is back in, say, early, late 2015, early 2016. Um, so we got pregnant um, very quickly and it was all very exciting. Everything looked normal. I went to the doctor, had my bloods done. I was booked in for my first scan, which would have been at eight weeks. Um, I told my family at five weeks. I you know, knew my due date. I had started thinking of names and I was very much of the attitude that, well, here I am. I got pregnant. I'm going to have this baby. We're going to become parents this autumn. Um, you know, my friends were having seemingly easy pregnancies, you know, got pregnant easily. 
nothing, it didn't occur to me that anything would be a problem. So when I started bleeding at about, just before I got to about six and a half weeks, you know, I rang my doctor and she said, you know, spotting is perfectly normal in early pregnancy, but just keep an eye on it and let me know if anything changes. A couple of days later, it, it increased and I went on to have um, a miscarriage, my first miscarriage at six and a half weeks. And I remember just being absolutely heartbroken. I mean, I, I found it traumatizing. Um, you go from this um, very sort of, um, very sort of deep connection with your body. It's hard to describe, but when maybe it was just because it was my first pregnancy and um, I just felt this enormous sort of pride that I was pregnant and it was our little secret apart from my family knowing. And, you know, for that then just to, to suddenly go almost overnight, you know, you, I literally sort of felt the hormones draining from my body. And, um, it took a while really to um, pick myself up and recover. Um, I remember I did go to the doctor and back then anyway, I'm not sure if things have changed or improved, but back then you, um, weren't really seen in any detail or tested, um, extensive, extensively until you had three miscarriages. So I remember my my GP, you know, referring me for hormone, just a basic hormone panel and everything was fine. Um, I was told to, to skip a month cycle and then try again. So we tried again a couple of months later, I got pregnant again and I was a little bit more, I suppose, reluctant to, to tell my family. I did tell my mom, though. And again, this this pregnancy ended around the same time at six and a half weeks. Um, I was a little bit sort of less shocked and less surprised this time but you know it's still the physical loss of it I mean the blood loss alone um really does sort of weaken you physically for you know a week or, or two even and after um, that second one or on that second one had you been scanned earlier because you had a previous miscarriage or I did so I went in for blood tests earlier and I remember the doctor saying to me that I mean pregnancy tests home pregnancy tests were showing up that I was pregnant but I remember the doctor ringing me after one of those blood tests and saying you know this pregnancy is going to fail your HCG levels are, are too low so um you know that one failed next time third third one it happened again and over the the course of about two years it was between early 2016 to early 2018 I had 14 of these early pregnancy losses I mean they were called biochemical pregnancies by the doctor again it was quite a sort of clinical approach that he took I mean people were very kind and very sympathetic as well but you know I, I never had a confirmed clinical pregnancy so um, I never got to the stage of having a scan and actually seeing you know, the beginnings of a baby in there. Yes, it was all yeah, just yeah. these very early um, chemical pregnancies. And I, I, over those two years, I had extensive testing done. I mean, from, you know, all the hormone testing to kind of things like thyroid, karyotyping, which is a sort of a genetic compatibility test that me and Wes had. He had all his sides of the tests, of course, because, you know, fertility, as, as we're discovering, is a 50-50 um, issue with couples. Um, we, you know, I remember um, sending uh, bloods or a smear test up up north to get it privately um, examined. I brought bloods to the virology clinic at UCD one day because it would take too long for the courier to to bring them there. Um, according to my GP, I mean, I had extensive testing. I had a hysteroscopy actually in two thousand and seventeen. That's where they and... like put dye into your tubes. 
um, they looked into your uterus. Um, so this was done under, I think it was done under general anaesthetic and they ended up cutting out um, a little sort of piece of tissue from the top of my uterus uh, called a septum. And the doctor said it was only about 10% of my sort of lining of my uterus. But he said that he thought this could be the issue that... Um, you know, implantation was going wrong because implantation was happening in this septum, which isn't as, um, you know, maybe more hostile to the implantation process than other parts of your uterine, your uh, uterine lining. So um, after the hysteroscopy, I was told to wait a month or two before trying to get pregnant again, got pregnant after a couple of months. And I thought, this is it, that's going to work because, you know, the, the problem has been solved by this procedure. And of course, it didn't work. It just ended again at kind of the six and a half week mark. Um, I suppose by process of elimination, I mean, I did a lot of research during this time myself. I, I asked as many questions as I could. I ended up seeing about five different fertility specialists between Ireland and the UK. And by process of elimination, we got to my immune system. And I mean, you know, anyone, I suppose, who knows anything about fertility would tell you that it's quite a grey area in terms of research. There's an awful lot we don't know about um, human pregnancy, pregnancy loss and fertility. And that's certainly what I discovered during the course of, um, you know, the, these two years is that there's, there is so much that medical science doesn't know. Which is so frustrating when you're in that space and you just want these experts to tell you why, what is happening? Why am I miscarrying? And they're and like, I, mm, was, it's I was researching experts and thinking, okay, well, this person maybe has a good reputation for the immunology stuff within reproductive science. So I'll talk to him about immune system, um, you know, questions that I have. And, you know, you pay, I mean, a lot of money to send blood tests over, say, to Chicago. There was a, a Chicago blood test because it's tested, you know, it's looked at in Chicago. So you're paying, I mean, an awful lot of money. It's prohibitively expensive for, you know, for so many people even to get to this stage. Um, so, yeah, as you say, it's incredibly frustrating because you think maybe the next course of medication that you take will be the breakthrough that, you know, that'll encourage the pregnancy to continue. So every time I would get pregnant and, you know, really we had, luckily we had no problems uh, getting pregnant. It was just the maintaining it. You know, each time I would try something different. So I'd try heparin injections. Um, it turned out actually through the course of investigations that I have a genetic blood clotting um, condition called factor five Leiden, which, um, can be managed with blood thinners. So I used to inject heparin into my stomach every time I got pregnant. And I, I continued to do that during my, my pregnancy with the twins. Um, so I did that. I did progesterone. You know, progesterone, anyone who's been on the pessaries will tell you it's not that pleasant. But also um, I did progesterone injections, which involves a very big needle into your bum. So, uh, you know, you're just covered in bruises as well. And, you know, through that time, I was trying to sort of, it wasn't that I was hiding what was going on in the background, but you don't want to burden others with your problems. You don't want to be um, complaining to others or, or talking about such a private and sensitive issue as well. You know, I was highly aware that other people I knew were going through difficulties and I sort of just wanted to... Um, keep a brave face and keep smiling through the pain and um, keep pretending everything was okay. But really the the most therapeutic um, step I took was to talk about it very openly with just a close circle of friends and family. 
And, you know, I've since said on many occasions that if you are somebody going through it or, you know, as an individual or a couple to, to really just find somebody close that you can confidentially speak to about what you're going through. Because, you know, as a couple, Wes and I, obviously we're going through it together and we supported each other through it. Although, you know, I found that he was the one picking up me after every sort of loss. He was the one that had to be kind of stronger for the two of us. But of course, you know, he was losing out on his dreams to become a dad. You know, he was, his sort of hopes and dreams are shattered every time the bleeding started for me. So, um, looking back, um, maybe we should have gone to some kind of therapy together or you know it was actually offered in one of the fertility clinics we were going to and kind of at the time I thought no it'll be fine I've got this far you know I did have to do an awful lot lot of work on myself to really think what makes me happy in life what I want from life what we want as a, as a couple in life and we we had a lot of conversations particularly after the hysteroscopy because that was a low point where I sort of thought maybe this isn't actually going to happen for us maybe you know, we're, we are going to be childless. And if so, we're going to have to focus on what makes us happy in life. So we talked about, you know, pursuing kind of passions or business ideas or travel or, you know, getting more dogs. We we had two Pomeranians at the time. We only have one now, sadly. But and um, we said, OK, well, you know, we'll get loads of dogs and have some kind of maybe animal shelter at our home and have donkeys and goats and, and you know, dogs and all, you know, so we had all these great ideas. And had you talked about, like, in that conversation, at what point will we pivot into, okay, we're going to go with the dog sanctuary or, or had you decided, like, <laughs> we, how long will you try for? Did. I mean, we, you know what, we didn't give ourselves a timeline and we had our age on our side. I mean, we're, we were sort of 32, 33 at this stage, 34 maybe. Um, and, you know, the doctors I'd seen had kept saying to me, you know, don't worry, you've got another kind of guts of a decade, really, if you, if you want to do this. Um, but there's, you don't get that much comfort from somebody telling you, oh, you're fine, you've got seven, eight years left of a baby when you actually want a baby now and you're watching all your friends have their second or third children. Uh, you know, it's, you don't get an awful lot of comfort from that either. But, um, you know, and I appreciate that children aren't everybody's idea of happiness. Not everyone wants a family to feel complete or to feel that their life is complete. But for us, um, coming from families, you know, I have two brothers and Wes has um, two sisters and a brother. So we both just together felt that it was our idea of happiness and what we wanted. Um, so and it got to a point then around the same time in the middle of 2017 when I sort of had my darkest moment, I suppose, in, in our, our journey. And I said to Wes, you know, I don't think I'm the woman to give you children. It's it's not actually looking like it's going to happen. So I, you know, just said to him, you know, if you want to go off and find someone else to have a family with, then I'll support that. I remember I, I was deadly serious about it. I just thought, you know, I love him, so I'll set him free. I'll let him go off and pursue his family dream. Um, but he sort of... He didn't laugh at me, but I suppose we look back and laugh at, you know, I was just in the depths of despair, really, at that stage. And of course, he said to me, Rosie, you know, you're the person I married. You're the person I want to have a family with. Um, but I was at, at that sort of low point that I felt it was the best thing to do. Obviously, looking back now at what we have as a house full of little children, it just seems crazy that I got to that point. But um you know, it's you can never really know what what the future holds either. Um, 
so after that, we got through 2017. I was on, I got, at that stage, I had um, been having the immune system tests and they had discovered that there was sort of an issue with um, what are called TH1 and TH2 cytokines. Um, there was an imbalance there and my um, doctor at that point thought that taking an immune suppressant sort of cocktail of medication would help to suppress my immune system. So is is that the sense that like, when you get pregnant, your body identifies it as some sort of immune threat and terminates yeah. it. Sorry, yeah, I should explain it in more detail. Um, so he felt that my immune system was identifying Wes's DNA, um, say in a fertilized egg, Wes's DNA as a foreign invader, and it was just literally launching a, a response against it to kill it and he felt that that might make sense because you know my miscarriages were happening at around the same time no matter what I was doing and you know I'd, I'd long since stopped blaming myself at that stage because I found initially I was kind of thinking maybe I shouldn't have had that cup of coffee or gosh did I do too much in my Pilates class today and you know I think as a woman it's it's quite easy to blame yourself it's maybe your immediate response is to blame yourself and feel guilty about something but I'd long since you know left that behind um so really I was focusing on sort of the the maybe medical sides I could take um or medical pathways I could take to support a pregnancy so yeah so the doctor felt that my immune system wasn't working um in a beneficial way so I was taking um corticosteroids I took another um injection I had to do two rounds of this injection called Humira, which um, I think was originally designed for rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's. And it's quite a, a strong um, drug to suppress your immune system. And it wasn't doing much. I had another round of, it's called the Chicago Half um, Bloods, um, just to check again if my immune system was responding in the way they wanted it to. And it, it was, but it wasn't enough. My, you know, it wasn't reaching sort of a, a low enough um, mark. Uh, and I was starting to, you know, I was getting headaches, I was getting mouth ulcers, I was really feeling the side effects of this medication. So it got to a point really, um, I suppose in about early 2018, I went back to one of the, the fertility specialists I'd seen originally. And, I, you know, I was saying to him, I feel like I'm putting my health in jeopardy at this stage. I can't keep taking myself this medication. This stuff, yeah. And I was only allowed to do two rounds of the Humira anyway. And so, you know, he just said to me, you know, I don't think you're going to be able to carry a baby yourself. You know, we've tried everything. And he said to me in his 25 years of fertility practice that he actually hadn't seen anyone who, who got pregnant as easily as I did, but just couldn't maintain the pregnancy. Um, so it was not very helpful. Like... But he was trying to be helpful. I mean, he had been very supportive, but I suppose he was being honest. And, you know, sometimes you do need to hear that brutal honesty as well to, to I suppose, force you into a decision make, making sort of process. And he said to me, oh no, I actually said to him, what do you think about surrogacy? And he goes, well, you know, it, it could work for you. I mean, you've got age on your side. It doesn't seem to be a actual sort of egg and sperm issue. You know, my AMH levels were very good. Um, so he said, you know, it's, you'd have to maybe look into it in much more detail. He, he wasn't able to give me that much information about it. So you know, I got home that day and started Googling. Um, and at that stage, I had known someone who had pursued surrogacy and it had been um, successful, but it wasn't talked about. And even to compare it to, to now, I mean, we're 
we're having this conversation about fertility and miscarriage and IVF and surrogacy and it's it's so positive to see how how far the conversation has evolved and obviously in Ireland I mean we need to um well, not we but the government really needs to deal with legislation for surrogacy um but hopefully that will come um so as I understand it at the moment, it's not possible to do surrogacy in Ireland with an Irish surrogate. Yeah, it's legally a completely sort of barren landscape. Um, what we did was, and this is what I would advise any individual or, or couple pursuing surrogacy, is to, you know, once you have your kind of medical advice, once you've been maybe advised that it is the best option for you to have a baby, um you know, arranged to to speak to a lawyer who specializes in surrogacy law, which is what we did. Kind of the first step we took then in early 2018 was to find uh, a lawyer in Ireland who um, specializes in in surrogacy, I mean, internationally. And she was able to advise us that Ukraine would be the best option for for us as an Irish married couple and that she'd had clients um, who were successful. Are there only certain territories that you can... That that there are surrogates like Ukraine and others, or is it yeah, pretty much Ukraine anywhere? is one. Greece. Um, some people go to the states, to California, um, Canada. I think is another one. Uh, so we were just advised that Ukraine had probably a, a good success rate in terms of um, you know Irish couples being able to bring their babies home and um, that kind of thing. So we. Again, I just went back to Google and started emailing different... Um, we were given a list of um, agencies and clinics. So the, the surrogacy agencies and clinics tend to pair together and work together. So again, I just started emailing them and um, giving some information and you know talking to them then. And we ended up choosing a clinic called New Life Ukraine, um, which is based in Kiev. And I realized as well that actually only recently I've been hearing... I used to pronounce it Kiev, but I think um, people in Ukraine pronounce it Kiev. So I realized I've probably been pronouncing it wrong my, my whole life. Um, but we, yeah, we I just started speaking to this um, agency and clinic over there. And we were sent um, sort of this 12-page um, manual on just online. It's um, sort of intended parents information. And we knew that we'd be doing what's called a self-cycle. So we'd be using my egg and Wes's sperm rather than a donor egg. And it just gave us all the information we needed to, I suppose, look at before we could be accepted onto the program. And I mean, it was it was really detailed, which I appreciate, of course, because it meant that, you know, both parties or I suppose three parties, the, the clinic um, and agency and then the surrogate and then us as a couple everybody was covered sort of medically and le- legally and, and well looked after and that was another priority for me was that um, if we decided to go with the surrogate there that she would be very well looked after um, you know from a medical and legal perspective I didn't want anybody being exploited yes, in any course, way yeah. or, or not looked after so I did a lot of research into that area I read a lot of information about how surrogates are looked after over there um, you know, I read kind of real life stories, reviews, that kind of thing. So that was definitely a priority for me. 
taking a break from the show to tell you about our sponsor, humdingermortgages.ie, your new gaff without the faff. Humdinger are an award-winning mortgage brokerage and they specialise in finding the right mortgage for you. The best part is that you deal with the broker and they deal with every major bank in the Irish market so you don't have to trawl around talking to loads of people. They also make the best recommendation on what's the best way to proceed for you specifically and they stay at your side to help you at every step of the way from application to drawing down your mortgage. They're in the mortgage business, right? Not the application business. They have absolutely no interest in putting you through the ringer and getting you to fill out loads of forms without getting a mortgage at the end. And they're really honest from the get-go about what the problems might be with your application. But then they don't abandon you. They will stay by your side and give you the best advice on how to make sure that you are successful the next time you apply. They specialise in helping first-time buyers, people looking to trade up and people like me who are looking to save ourselves some money by switching our mortgage for a better rate. And like for me, I'm going to switch my mortgage. I'm working with Humdinger because like a reduction of even 0.5% on my mortgage rate can save me like 30 grand in interest over the whole term of my mortgage. Mortgages are the biggest financial decision you are ever going to make. So take advantage of speaking to experts and go to humdingermortgages.ie to begin your journey. While I have you, I want to tell you about another show on the network. It's a new show that I think you might enjoy. It's called Late Night Nod. Um, it's So it's a brand new podcast and it's got original music and these hilarious improvised interviews with guests from a fictional world of art and culture. There's this guy, uh, Brian McCann. He's introducing us to some of the world's like best known personalities, most creative people that you have never heard of. Um, it's really, really funny. Give it a whirl. Let me know if you like it. And yeah, try it out. The Late Night Nod features original music and improvised interviews with guests from a fictitious world of arts and culture. Each episode weaves a conversational thread through tales of inspiration, excess and heartache with some of the creative world's best-known personalities that you've never heard of. Join some of Ireland's most talented actors and comedians as they step into the world of The Late Night Nod. So while I have you, I'm going to take the opportunity to um, take you hostage for a minute and tell you about the merchandise that we are selling. We have notebooks and pens, which are branded with the basically branding. And you should buy them. You should buy them because it's a lovely notebook. Who doesn't need a notebook? If you are a Headstuff podcast member, if you buy the notebook, you get the pen for free. It supports me. It supports the podcast. It supports the producers, the people who work on the show and means that we can continue to make these podcasts and give them to you for free. If you want to become a Headstuff podcast member, if you get a lot from the podcast and you think, God, I'd like to support Stephanie and the podcast, you can become a Headstuff podcast member for €5 plus that. Uh, Or you can give more if you want to. Go to headstuffpodcast.com and you can click register there. The people who are in the community, the Headstuff podcast members, are my favourite people. They support the podcast. They mean that you can listen to this podcast for free. It's €5 a month. I'm going to stop talking now, but I really appreciate your support. Thank you. And then when you were doing the, like, in order to get your own egg, you had to do an egg retrieval cycle. Do you, did you do that in Ireland and then send the uh, egg or do you have to be in Ukraine to do that? So we went to Ukraine. So we did about, it was roughly 10 months then of, of blood tests, um, scans, um, every type of test and scan really I, I thought was possible to to be able to um, be sort of... Um, you know, accepted onto the program yes, yes. and get to the point of signing contracts. So most of 2018 was just spent, you know, doing blood tests for things like infectious diseases. Um, you know, I had to go back and do kind of blood, um, blood panels, hormones, you know, ovary scans. 
tuberculosis scans on lungs. Um, Wes had to do his tests. And it was really just to ensure that our biological material would be safe to, to put, put into, into another yes, person. Yeah. So that actually was very reassuring to know that um, they were they were so sort of conscientious and so detailed in that respect. Um, but again, Ireland, you know, really showed me that Ireland is not, of course, understandably so set up for... Um, intended parents for surrogacy because it's not like there's a one-stop shop you can go to to get all the te- these tests and scans done you know I was lucky to have a very understanding GP a female GP who was able to say okay you know go here for your smear go here um, to send blood I had to courier blood off to Greece for one of the tests that I couldn't even get done in Ireland um, she, I was in and out nearly every week to the GP's surgery, um, either getting tests done or, uh, you know, all the letters had to be signed and stamped there to be able to send over to um, Ukraine. Eventually, I mean, it took 10 months. I had to see another specialist uh, consultant in St. James's um, for like a, a genetic hematologist. And as anyone in Ireland knows, getting a consultant um, appointment can take a while and getting test results can take a while. So it all took really the guts of 10 months. Finally, then I was able to courier over this massive package of um, all our tests over to Ukraine. And it was, I mean, it was the most um, terrifying two-week wait. You know, we talk about two-week waits in sort of fertility circles, but this was a two-week wait to send all of our precious um, test results over. And um, I thought, you know, if this gets lost somehow or destroyed somewhere, you know, we'll have to start from scratch again. Anyway, it arrived safely. We were accepted onto the programme. We signed our contracts then in November um, 2018. And then, I mean, it was very quick from their side. They're set up for surrogacy, obviously. So it took about four weeks to find a surrogate, get her tested, make sure she was appropriate. Um, Over there, they just ask that the surrogate is uh, unmarried for legal reasons and that they've vaginally delivered their own baby without any complications so they they found sort of the the perfect girl um we didn't we decided not to to meet her at the beginning um we would wait to the end of the pregnancy to meet her again I suppose it suited us to not have that sort of maybe human relationship and it sounds very clinical it doesn't though it's totally understandable you've been through so much but we had been through so so much and we just wanted a very sort of medical legal approach to the whole thing and to just you know maybe think about the the relationship with her kind of towards the end and so we went over to Kiev um in February 2019 and spent three weeks there doing um so the egg stimulation process and then the egg retrieval and that bit actually took about 10 days and as anyone who's done IVF or even you know frozen frozen their eggs or anything like that will know it's it's uncomfortable you you know, you do a lot of self-injecting, you get a lot of bruises. It's quite uncomfortable in the last few days to walk around with these big swollen ovaries. But looking back, I was grateful for that experience because it meant that, you know, I, I feel like I, I carried Sophia, our daughter, for those few days yes, in a very yeah. tangible way. And because I still feel guilt, you know, when I look at our, my three babies, I still feel guilt that I couldn't give birth to Sophia. And I did give birth to to two boys. You know, I, I just think... I hope she never grows up feeling in any way different to her brothers because we work so hard. You know, we went through so much to have our little girl. Um, but yeah, so I did the egg retrieval procedure. It went well. Um, got I think, 23 eggs. Um, 
And we just flew home then. We'd had a lovely three weeks in Kiev or Kiev. Um, and I'll just say at this point that my, my heart is very much with the Ukrainian people. Um, it's a wonderful country um, with, you know, the most gorgeous, friendly, hardworking people. They just want to live a peaceful life with their families. And, and what's happening is just evil you know it's depraved and evil and i think we're all just looking on in horror at what's happening um so really my my heart is is with the people of ukraine and they're just incredible people and kiev is an amazing city as well um so anyway sorry just to, to go back we we came home again and really it was out of our control from then on um our surrogate went in a couple of weeks later they did the frozen embryo transfer into her in in march 2019 we had another two week wait waiting to to get the results of her pregnancy test and her blood tests and on the 26th of march then we found out that she was pregnant and her her blood hcg levels looked excellent for that you know the early stage of pregnancy then the next step was really the the six-week scan came in and they detected a heartbeat then and it was it was sort of bizarre parallel world I was living in where I hadn't really told anyone I my grandmother I'm close to I hadn't told her what we were doing my brothers knew my parents knew maybe a best friend knew a couple of friends and nobody else knew so I was sort of living my life as normal while a woman you know a few thousand miles away was was carrying our baby and then it was just sort of the eight week scan, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, it got to 12 weeks. And I was um, working with Town Organic. I was on a press day for them. And I just, we, we had a lunch break and I just, um, you know, opened my phone to look at my emails and the 12 week scan images had just been sent into oh, me wow, from yeah. the clinic. And I said, just excuse me a moment. And I ran down to the bathroom and I just stood in the bathroom bawling my eyes out looking at this you know you know a 12-week scan it's this perfect little you know three inch long uh, baby and you know I was looking at her, her little spine and her little legs and hands and skull and I just thought how can something so perfect grow in a stranger's body and not mine and you know it was the first time that I thought god this might actually happen we might actually be having a baby because I just when you've been through so much already, you, you don't want to ever believe Make that you hopes. might be successful. Yeah, yeah. You know, the whole process was just a series of small victories. Okay, we're, you know, we're past the contract stage, we're past the egg retrieval stage where we've had the embryo transfer. You know, it was just a series. I never wanted to think further than the next scan. And even with that, I mean, between the, you know, the two weeks between each scan, I was a bag of anxiety. I wasn't sleeping. Uh, you know, it's terrifying in those first uh, few months. Um, so yeah, 12 weeks past 16 weeks, we found out at 16 weeks that um, we were having a girl. So we did a lovely little gender reveal. At, at that stage, I had told my family and maybe a couple more friends and we did little gender reveal. Um, and then it just sort of went on and I gradually relaxed into it. Um, we got through the 20 week scan and um, at about 26 weeks, I started kind of thinking, okay, I might start buying a few baby clothes, you know, yeah, stocking yeah. up on nappies and things like that. Um, and the clinic were great. They were in touch all the time. Um, I'd actually, August that year, so the pregnancy would have been about 23 weeks at that stage. I couldn't wait any longer. I was desperate to see our surrogate's baby bump. And this would have been the first time that, apart from a little sort of thumbnail picture 
on her profile with the contract yeah, yeah. in the beginning I didn't really know anything about her or what she looked like or you know where she lived or anything like that so I requested a picture of her bump and I thought maybe this day she will definitely be showing so I remember when the picture came in it was two pictures and she was just there smiling she had her nails painted pink and she was standing against pink wallpaper which was you know sweet touch and she was feeling her bump and I just remember thinking you know I was so grateful obviously and I, I couldn't feel more sort of love and gratitude for this stranger but I just remember thinking you know it's she's going through my pregnancy she's feeling the kicks that I should have been feeling she's you know she's got a little girl so does her little girl think that she is having a sibling you know does her partner look at her bump and think you know what does he think what does her family think is she just going about her everyday life um she lives in southern ukraine and um, does she go about her everyday life just you know carrying her baby you know do strangers congratulate her it, it was just such a a wave of unexpected emotions that came over me that and it brought you know it reminded me why we just wanted to focus on the sort of medical side of the pregnancy and just look at the scans and you know the growth charts and that kind of thing because it just brought this whole human side in and all these sort of feelings that I hadn't um, anticipated and I found it really hard to deal with seeing that. Um, Were you getting psychological support at that point? No, you know, and again, I would say to anybody going through this to, you know, to get support, to if it's feasible for you, do get some kind of counselling. Again, as I said, I'd sort of been through so much already at this point that I had people I could talk to and I, I really did see the importance of talking about it. And even now talking about it is cathartic, you know, writing my book about it has been cathartic. So I think the healing process doesn't stop when you've been through um, fertility struggles. And then tell us Um, when in the pregnancy did you realise that you were pregnant yourself or was it not until after Sophia came? It was it was just after. So Sophia was born then in November 2019 and we went over Kiev for about a month um, and, you know, she was born. And I mean, again, it's one of those experiences. How can you ever prepare yourself for watching a stranger give birth to your baby? It was just the most extraordinary, exhilarating, terrifying sort of moment, uh, you know, of my life, really. And um, even compared to giving birth myself, it was even more terrifying. And I remember the doctor saying to me, um, okay, do you want to cut the umbilical cord? And I didn't know what to say. So I said, is it a left-handed scissors? I'm left-handed. And I mean, just <laughs> looking back at the ridiculous things you say in the height of a moment when you're just sort of frozen with fear. Anyway, Sophia was handed to us. I remember just crying at our surrogate's feet, just saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. And, you know, the woman had just given birth. She was in no mood to sort of watch me, you know, crying at her her feet. But she was fantastic anyway. Amazing woman. I mean, Ukrainian women are so strong and pragmatic and, um, you know, just they're they're incredible. So, um, yeah, we took Sophia home then after a month. We got all her sort of documentation done. um, Sorry, in the two weeks after she was born. Came home just before Christmas um, and then early 2020, um, our surrogate messaged me. She had stayed in touch anyway and she messaged me and said that she would like to give Sophia a sibling because we had said to her, you know, we, we would like a sibling for Sophia at some point and we won't wait around because we have our, we had, we still have more frozen embryos over in Kiev. 
Um, so she had said that she medically had to wait eight months before going through the process again of getting pregnant. So we had planned in July 2020 to, you know, sign the papers literally and, okay. and you know, go through the process again. And of course, lockdown happened. Um, we sort of just got into this little familiar routine at home, despite the anxiety in the outside world. You know, I, I certainly relaxed um, at home with just having Sophia there. And my husband was at home and uh, something bizarre happened anyway in March, early March 2020. Um, I had just been on the Late Late Show talking about how, you know, we'd been through the surrogacy process. I couldn't have a baby naturally. Um, I suppose for the few weeks before the interview, I'd been feeling very tired and a little bit nauseous. And I put it all these symptoms down to just having a newborn and you know when you have a newborn you're not eating particularly nutritious food you're kind of living on coffee and junk <laughs> half the time I wasn't really getting much sleep and um, so I put any of those sort of symptoms down to that so it was actually the day after I was on the late late show talking about not being able to have a baby myself that um, I started bleeding and I had missed a couple of periods so I kind of thought oh, it's just again it's just due to stress and sleep deprivation so um, I didn't think much of it bleeding kind of on and off for a couple of days um, and then uh, sort of on the say the Tuesday of that week I had intense cramping that evening and um you know, I don't want to get too gory with it, but um, I, I had a miscarriage. And at the time I was saying, no, no, Wes, it's just a heavy period. Sure, I haven't had a period in two months, just a heavy period. And he was so concerned about blood everywhere that um, he rang my mum and she came over to the house. It was about half eight um, at night. And she said, I was like lying on the floor in a ball of pain, like mm -hmm. crying and shivering. Um, and she said, Rosie, this isn't normal. Um, I'm taking you straight into Hollis Street. So brought me into to Hollis Street to the emergency department. And I kept saying to the nurse, no, no, I, you don't understand. I can't have a baby. I couldn't have been pregnant. This is just a heavy period. And she sent, you know, the tissue off to the lab um, and did a, a urine blood test as well. And she came back and she said, you were pregnant. When was your last period? So we counted and I, I would have been 10 and a half, nearly 11 weeks pregnant. And I kept saying to her, no, you don't understand. I, I can't have a baby. This isn't possible. And I had this big grin on my face then. I was like, mom, I was nearly 11 weeks pregnant. I've never got this far. And the nurse, you know, separate nurse and doctor were coming in and they couldn't believe. I was just like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I was like buzzing at the idea that I'd got this far in a pregnancy. And, you know, the nurse kind of was very gentle and she thought maybe I'd gone a bit loopy, I think, from blood loss. Because she was like, it's OK, we have support. You can have counselling. You can talk to someone. We can arrange it. And um, that's no problem. And I was like, no, I'm fine. I've got a, a three month old to go home to. You know, I'm delighted. And obviously, I mean, I probably was a bit overtired, but um, I, I suppose if I didn't have Sophia to go home to, it would have been a different story. I would have been absolutely devastated. But um, the fact that I didn't know I was pregnant as well was a big factor. Were they able to help find out with that pregnancy what had happened? Was it different? The fact, like, what was different that made you get to that eleven-week mark with the, um, the I think, sample? and this won't be helpful really for anyone in that situation. But I think I we had stopped trying. You never stop stop trying yeah. I suppose when you're trying to have a baby. But we'd stopped actively trying. We'd stopped thinking about it. We'd stopped talking about it. 
and we'd gone into lockdown and um sorry no this is just before lockdown but you know I'd had a newborn at home and I wasn't even thinking about trying to have a baby myself as far as I was concerned Mm -hmm. I couldn't and I'd make peace with the girl that I couldn't that couldn't have a baby I'd very much be happy about openly saying to people you know I can't have a baby I need medical help I need a surrogate to have a baby um, so I think it was that combined with our surrogate offering to have a sibling for Sophia just made me think, okay, you know, our family will be complete. Um, we'll have our babies and I I won't ever have to go through, you know, a fertility struggle like we'd been through or a miscarriage again. Um, so I had this shock miscarriage early March 2020. We went into lockdown and at the end of March, we conceived Hugo and Oscar um so yeah three weeks after miscarriage number 15 um when we had surrogacy plans in place again for you know a few months later we conceived our twins and you know it's I think it was just a series of events um I remember the the doctor and nurse had separately told me in Hollis Street that night that I would be extra fertile after having a miscarriage at um you know that stage of pregnancy I think it was that combined with being in lockdown relaxing more um you know I think just settling into a routine at home sort of took the stress of everyday life of kind of every day you know getting up going out going to things travel that kind of thing um took that away and again just our our surrogate thing she'd have um another baby for us just I think it was just a a series of of coincidences you know the stars aligned and And did you um, my body was able to conceive and and maintain a pregnancy did you know with Hugo and Oscar like did you know that you were pregnant at four weeks or was it sort of like the previous miscarriage where you didn't know for weeks and weeks and then um, no, I did know quite early on because with the twin pregnancy, you know, the, the hormones are, are stronger mm-hmm. and I just felt really tired kind of by mid-April. Um, my birthday is the 17th of April and I remember by mid-April thinking, God, I, you know, I was just really sort of tired and a little bit dizzy and I ended up taking a test when I would have been about four and a half weeks. And I remember sh- I showed the test to Wes and um, I remember us looking at each other going, not again. And I just thought I can't bear the idea of having to go into Hollis Street again. In I was kind of counting it out in another couple of weeks with another miscarriage and having to go through all this blood loss and, you know, the the, the physical pain as well as the emotional pain of it. Um, so, yeah, my first instinct was to kind of think, oh, it was I was dreading really going through it again. Um, but anyway, I ended up contacting a, a doctor I had seen in Hollis Street previously and just telling him that I'd been in having a, a very painful miscarriage a few weeks before and what did he recommend? And he said to me to go in for a scan. Um, so I went in for a scan the following week and I actually thought I was further along than I was because after a miscarriage, um, your, your cycle maybe gets a little bit skewed and you don't ovulate at the same kind of time as as normal so I, I was earlier than I thought I was so um he scanned me and he saw an empty sack and he said well you know you are you did get pregnant but it looks like um it's it's empty and it won't progress you know it won't be a, a pregnancy and he just said I'm really sorry I hope you're okay but why don't you come in next week because sometimes women do get their dates wrong so I talked to him then about, you know, what would happen, you know, 
with a miscarriage, um, you know, whether I would need a DNC or whether I would just allow a natural miscarriage to happen. We discussed that. So I went in the following week. Nothing happened over the weekend. Went in the following week and he scanned me again. We saw um, a little embryo and a heartbeat. And I, I mean, I was filming the whole thing because Wes wasn't able to come in to scans with me, you know, due to COVID restrictions. So I was filming the whole thing and I just burst into tears when I saw the heartbeat. And I just said, you know, I've never got to the stage of seeing a heartbeat before. This is extraordinary. And um, so it was, that was all very exciting. And, you know, I went home, I rang Wes and said, you'll never believe it. It's not an empty sack. There's, there's a baby in there with a heart, with a heartbeat. And so um, that, was, that was fine anyway. And the doctor got me in the following week. And so for my third scan in three weeks, and he was just you know, scanning me and we both saw something up, up, up on the monitor and he called in a nurse and um, he said, just um, wait a moment. I said, it's twins, isn't it? And he goes, yeah, it's twins. And we could see clearly two little, you know, two two babies in there and, and we heard two heartbeats. And I mean, this was just too much for me. I remember I was filming it as well. So it's lovely to have the video yeah. of the moment. Um, but I was just going, holy shit, holy shit twins and it was you know to see you know hear two heartbeats and see two babies in there in, in their separate sacks and you know the nurse was able to confirm as well that she could see two and it, they were able to say at that stage that it was identical twins because they were sharing a placenta but they were in individual sacks so for the third week in a row I rang Wes and I was like you're gonna have to sit down you won't believe it it's twins and I also rang my parents then um on the way out of the hospital and I think they nearly fell over with the shock but as well but again I mean from previous experience I just thought well this is really exciting but I'm not going to get yes, excited yeah, yeah. about it you know it was very much just behave as normal get on with life and really from there I was I was being scanned weekly um until about 12 weeks and then I was going into a specialist um twin sort of department in in the hospital and um, just because twins are categorized as a high risk uh, high risk pregnancy um, because of complications that can arise with with twins sharing placenta, so I, I was sort of well looked after for the pregnancy. But you know, f- discovering it took me a long time, I suppose, well after the twenty week scan to actually believe it, it was happening. And I had to deal with an awful lot of again unexpected emotions, where you know I was so comfortable with the idea that I was the girl who couldn't have a baby that you know I'd been speaking very openly and publicly about going through the surrogacy process and being comfortable with the fact that my body didn't do what it was maybe biologically designed to do and so I had to almost reverse everything I thought I knew about myself and everything that I was comfortable about and at that point myself. did you have support from the ho- like the mental health support from the hospital or were you still going it alone do you know what I didn't again I just dealt with it Yourself. myself yeah. and I'm probably still dealing with it um but uh, you know eventually then it took me a long time then to, to even tell friends and um we were halfway through the pregnancy by the time I, I announced it as well it was just you know we were in lockdown for for a lot of that time so it was easier to hide the bump but um I remember restrictions were lifting and I was beginning to meet up with friends a little bit outside again and they were, you know, people were saying to me, why are you wearing a big winter coat in, in July? You know, so it was getting more difficult and twin bumps really, really show. show quite early on. Um, so I did announce it at that stage. And, you know, obviously the, the rest, the, is the rest history. of history went on to have Hugo and Oscar in November 2020. And 
you know, compared to having Sophia through surrogacy, it was much, much more of a smoother journey, much, um, much more, I suppose, maybe emotionally easier because I felt like I was in control, you know, with surrogacy, somebody else, you're, yeah. you're just leaving it up to a stranger or a team of, of doctors and nurses in a totally different country. And you have no control over any aspect really of the situation. You're just a sort of a, a bystander being sent scan results every few weeks. So I found it easier, you know, even though a, tw a twin pregnancy is, is difficult physically, I did find it sort of mentally and emotionally um, easier to deal with than um, surrogacy. But, you know, here we are, there's three days less than a year between all three of them. Um, and, it's just even every day Wes and I just look at each other and go, "How do we have three children?" You know, it's extraordinary, and it's it's, it's of course it's it's challenging at times, and it's extremely intensely busy at home. Um, I don't get out much <laughs> anymore, but you know, we we are so grateful for for I suppose our journey and everything we've been through, and um, you know, the fact that it did work out for us. And of course, I'm pain painfully aware that it doesn't work out um, for, for everybody who, who does try to have a baby. And um, I just have extreme sort of sympathy and empathy for, for anyone in the situation that we were in. It's, it's traumatic to go through a fertility struggle, through, you know, miscarriages. Even one miscarriage is traumatic. And it, it did take me a long time to sort of come to terms with it um, to lose that primal feeling of, of growing a life inside and of you. And that's the thing like once you've lost a uh, pregnancy you've also lost the naivety that you know a pregnancy test leads to a baby um, yeah. and the innocence, the innocence is you gone. Know, I was so innocent at the beginning and you know even the second time you get pregnant you you sort of approach it with a little bit more trepidation and um, fear you know, so yeah, that, that lovely innocence and I suppose pregnancy and motherhood is sort of represented in popular culture as being all, you know, beautiful and bright and wonderful. But it can and be happy. like and, for many people. You know, the reality is it's And tough. it can be a horror and show. It is. But I think people like you sharing your story and, um, you know, I, I know that some people won't be fortunate enough to have the ending that you have, but mm. certainly reducing the stigma and normalizing it um, is is really important because it's it sounds so brutal and it's certainly not something that people should be doing alone um, or feeling no, like they're not it's... able to share it. If people want to hear more about you or hear more of your story, will you tell us the title of your book and where they can get it or where they can find you on social? Of course. Um, well, When Dreams Come True, uh, published by Gill Books, is the name of my book. And it, it details in much more detail than I've just given you um, the, the beginning, middle and end of our fertility and surrogacy journey. And so that's available. Actually, there's a link in my bio on my Instagram. And we'll page, share it on the podcast. At Rosanna underscore Davison. There's a link to Irish and International Stockists. So it's in, you know, the shops like Eason's, um, Dubray Books. And then for anyone watching overseas, the book depository, um, I know does free shipping, I think, internationally. And Amazon as well is the other one. And then, yeah, I'm just, I'm on Instagram. I, I came off Twitter and Facebook for the most part. And um, I just couldn't keep up with 
them but yeah Instagram it's where you'll yeah, find Instagram me Instagram is a much nicer place to be than Twitter and Facebook yeah it's a, it's it's a, a nice community. lovely community I think. Uh, Roseanne Stevenson yeah. thank you so much for sharing your story it's really really beautiful to hear the the human side of all the sort of technical stuff we've been we've been hearing about on the podcast I'm really grateful mm. to you for sharing your story here but also just in general for, for being so open and uh, forthcoming with, with your story thank you so much Thank you so much and thank you for having me as a guest. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. Thanks. Take care. Bye. Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Basically. Our music is by Only Ruin. Our graphic design is by Kahlo Gara. We are produced by Julie Hassett and we're part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Catch you next week. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.